Bible Biogs in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, one character at a time. Author, pastor and Bible teacher Mike Beaumont is in conversation with David Taverner. In this episode, we're looking at the life of Job, the story of Job. And I say the story of Job because this is part of the wisdom literature, I believe, Mike. Yeah, that's right. By wisdom literature, we normally mean the books of Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs. And this is a collection of a variety of styles of writing. So we get proverbs and stories and poems, but they're all brought together by this united interest in pretty much how life works in this world. So they're very practical in their application. They're taking spiritual principles, but trying to look how life works in reality with God involved in our everyday hopes and joys and fears. So is this just a story? Well, that's hard to know. It could be a reflection of someone who actually lived. But I think it's more likely, in the light of the structure of the whole book, to have been a created story for a purpose. It's set in the time of the patriarchs. It's clear as we start the story of Job and read about him that he's the sort of nomadic figure with flocks and herds that people like Abraham, Isaac and Jacob were. So we go right back to that time. So we're going back to that time as the setting of the story. Now, wh when was that story written? Well, it, it, it could have been written at that time, but most scholars think actually it was written much later, which is why it's in the wisdom literature. So wisdom literature, we start dating from the time of King David, really, onwards. And it could have been written any time from the time of King David through to the exile that we've been looking at in previous episodes or even just after it. There's nothing in the text itself that shows us when it was written. We simply see the historical setting of the story that we're told. And who are the kind of key characters other than Job in this story? Well, key character Job, a wealthy farming nomad who lives, we're told, in the land of Oz. We don't even know exactly where that was, but we, we think it was probably east of the River Jordan. And that makes it interesting because then this becomes a story about a non-Israelite. So we get him and we get three, well, I was going to say three friends, three so-called friends, <laughs> Eliphaz, Bildad and Zophar, and a fourth figure who stands by listening in to the conversation and the wisdom of their words to him and who doesn't come in till towards the end of the story when they've all run out of arguments and have stopped talking. And a long, young man called Elihu uh, sidles up and says, well, you've, you've heard all these arguments now. Uh, now listen to me, Job, and comes out really with the same trite platitudes. So in this story, what actually happens to, to Job? Well, in chapter one, we find him presented to us as a, a really godly man. Uh, we're told that he was a man of complete integrity. He feared God 
and he stayed away from evil. And that found expression in Old Testament times, often through material possessions. So it goes on to tell us he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 teams of oxen, 500 female donkeys. He had many servants. He was, in fact, the richest person in that entire area. So the scene is set, a wealthy man, a godly man, a family man. But suddenly now, the scene changes. And the story takes us from us to the courts of heaven, where it tells us that Satan came into the courts of heaven and God says to him, where have you come from? And he says, I've been roaming the earth. And God says, have you considered my servant Job? He is such a godly man. And in chapter one, Satan says, yeah, but he's only godly because you blessed him. Take away his blessing and he wouldn't believe in you, would he? Quite a challenge to us there before we even go any further in the story. You know, is our faith and trust in God dependent on the blessings we get, on things working out good? That's what Job is accused of here by Satan, and maybe that some of us could be accused of at times. So what God says is, well, I've got confidence in him. I'm going to give you permission to test him and to test his faith. Some interesting things in passing there. What on earth is Satan doing in the court of heaven and why does God allow this? Well, in Hebrew thinking, God was the God of absolutely everything and everywhere. Nothing was beyond his reach. At the end of the day, Satan was no more than a fallen angel who ultimately has to submit himself to God. And it's interesting, he can't do a thing against Job until God has given permission. And so he takes that opportunity. And in chapter one, we find that tragedy comes against his flock, his sheep and his camels. It then even comes against his children, gets a messenger saying that your sons and your daughters were feasting and drinking wine at your oldest brother's house. And a a wind came up from the desert and blew the house down and they're all dead. A complete turnaround of his fortunes. Absolutely. From verse 1 and 2, where he is rich, wealthy, well settled, suddenly events happen in life that take away his wealth and take away his family. All of us have had experiences, I'm sure, where life has suddenly taken a turn. Something out of the blue happens. And it's at that point when that thing happens that the question comes to us. So what of your faith now? And what of Job's faith? At that point, chapter one ends with an incredible statement. I came naked from my mother's womb and I'll be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had and the Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord. And in all of this, Job did not sin by blaming God. So despite everything, despite losing everything, 
he's not actually asking the question why. It's interesting, isn't it? He doesn't ask why and he doesn't blame God. How easy it is for us when things go wrong, when tragedy comes, when sickness comes into our family or bereavement comes, we turn round and either ask God why or we blame him. Or we do a what happened with the Mary and Martha story. Lord, if you had been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. And I think what we get here is a window into the genuine godliness of this man, that his faith was not dependent on what he had or didn't have, on the material blessings that he had. He had a profound and deep trust in God alone. His friends, you've mentioned, obviously come into the picture. What's their involvement with uh, his predicament? Well, this is why this book is seen as wisdom literature. Because what happens is that Eliphaz, Bildad and Zophar come along and want to give Job explanations for why this has happened. Now, we just need to give a little bit of background here. The, the classic arguments in sort of Greek and Western thinking against evil was that, you know, how can suffering be explained in light of an all-powerful God? Well, either God is not almighty or God is not just. God does not care. But in Hebrew thinking, it was taken as a given that God is almighty and just. So we don't need to pursue that one. God is almighty and just. Therefore, if there is suffering, it must be not anything to do with God. It must be something to do with you. So the thinking went, it must be because of your sin that you are suffering. And the more you suffer, the more sinful you must be. Now, that's the line that Eliphaz, Bildad and Zophar take. And in some, frankly, exceedingly long-winded speeches at times, they pontificate, telling Job, well, I know this is tough, uh, but God is good and, and God is just. So if you are suffering like this, Job, it really must be because there is some hidden sin in your life that you have not faced up to. Now, how on earth does Job take that? Well, he's, he honestly looks inside himself and says, well, I may not be perfect, but I just don't think you were right. Now, in saying that, of course, he is not saying, I am sinless. As we said in previous episodes, there's only one person who's ever walked this earth who's sinless, that's Jesus. But what he was saying was he was honestly blameless. He had kept God's law. He had sought to keep his heart soft to God. And he knew that there wasn't any hidden sin. So he constantly comes back to them and says, well, guys, I just don't think you were right. And of course, all that does with them then is they come back yet again with yet more arguments and they take it in turns to, to bring these arguments. And as I said earlier, even this young man, Elihu, who's 
standing there at the edge, watching and listening all this, who promises to come out with some profound wisdom, really comes out with nothing new. Let, let me turn it into perhaps a, a modern example. As a pastor over many years, I've had occasions when people have come to me and said they were sick and they were prayed for at some meeting and because they weren't healed, they were told it was because there was sin in their life. That sort of thing is so devastating. Frankly, there's sin in all our life. But these were often godly people who I knew were trying with all their heart to follow God, live by his word, walk in his ways. And so the feeling that you get now is that it's your fault hmm. that God hasn't acted. Now, this is an equivalent of that. There's nothing wrong with God. God wants to heal you. If he hasn't, David, it must be your sin or your unbelief is the other thing we're often told here. Hmm. It's Job, there is nothing wrong with God. If you aren't healed, then it must be because there is sin in your life. And they hammer away at this and hammer away at this and just won't give ground. Thinking that they're being helpful, as presumably Job's friends thought they were being helpful. Absolutely. They they were coming out, in a sense, with, with classic, traditional Jewish thinking. They were not setting out to be unhelpful. They wanted their friend to be healed. And really they were saying, for goodness sake, man, if only you would face up to the sin that is there, that you must know is there deep down underneath, then you could be free of this thing. In fact, they really get quite impatient with him at times because he won't face up to this. But it all comes out of a heart to want to see the guy healed. But they're just coming out with platitudes to the point where, for example, in chapter 16, Job says to them, I've heard many things like these miserable comforters are you all, when will your long-winded speeches end? What ails you that you keep on arguing? He's, he's clearly had enough by this point, hasn't he? And, and, and what actually shut them up in the end? What shut them up was not argument. What shut them up was, well, God. Because at the end of the book, God breaks in to the story and joins the conversation he not only joins the conversation he silences all who have been conversing in chapter 38 we suddenly find god breaking in to the story and it says the lord answered job out of the storm and said who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge. Brace yourself like a man. I'll question you and you'll answer me. Well, um, you know, this is not God coming and saying, oh, there, there, Job, I know this is really tough. He's really saying, hey, you, get a grip of yourself. What are you doing challenging me about what's going on here? I'm now going to ask you some questions. <laughs> and God begins to bring revelation to Job and to his three friends. And he starts by saying, well, if you're so clever, uh, where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Um, who marked off 
its dimensions? Who shut up the seas behind the walls? Who calls morning and light into being? Where, where does light live? Where does snow come from? What about the stars? And he goes through the whole of creation, in effect, reminding them all that he is the great sovereign creator God who ultimately holds all things in his hands and that if there's something they don't understand, maybe this God who understands more than all of them has purpose in it. And then having brought this revelation, and it's interesting that the answer to Job's situation is, is not an answer to questions, it's a fresh revelation of God. I've found that so often in my own life when I've hit hard times and had questions and the answer wasn't getting an answer to the question. It was actually meeting with God again. By chapter 40, God is challenging Job and saying, will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Uh, excuse me, are you trying to tell me how to do my job, Job? So he gives them another context, a different context to the context that they were asking their questions in. Absolutely. And the context is the context of an all-knowing God who is, the word the Bible uses, is sovereign. The sovereignty of God is all about God being on his throne and working all things together for his good purpose, even those things that we might not understand. God's free to do what he likes, but what he does is always to an end purpose. And frankly, the whole point of that revelation and questions about creation was no one has any right to question God about what he does or to pass judgment on his decisions. And he's going to go on and bring a revelation of himself to Job to show how he is the sovereign God who rules over all things. This is an idea that's picked up again and again in the Bible. Sovereignty of God that we may not understand what's going on at the moment, but if we will trust in God, then he is able to bring something out of it, both for our good and for his good. One of my favorite passages in the New Testament is, is in Romans chapter 8, where Paul talks about how we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love him. And he's, it's like he's able to take all the loose threads of life, all the broken threads of life, and somehow weave them back together again. All that we would see as a mess. God, God is a redeemer God, and he can take our messes and rework them into his purposes for good. So Job is getting a revelation here of how great God is, how sovereign he is, and just how small-minded he himself is. Bringing this back to your modern application from earlier, what does that teach us then? And those who would sometimes glibly say things to people who are suffering, maybe without thinking. Yes, and again, I'm sure that just like Job's friends, when people do that, they do it because they mean well and they want to see their friend healed or delivered from that circumstance, whatever it might be. But, you know, 
you only have to look at the whole of the Bible to see that not everything always went swimmingly, even for the most godly of people. Pick any character you like, and I can show you how things seem to go wrong. Think of King David, anointed king. And for 10 years, he's on the run from an increasingly mad King Saul, at times risking his own life. And it would have been so easy for him to think, God, what are you doing? You've just anointed me king. But God was working all things together for good. So I would say to people, when you are going through a tough time, when you are facing sickness and you've prayed and you're just not seeing the breakthrough, do you know what? Okay, maybe you do have to look and say, is there any sin in my life? It's not a bad thing to do. But having done that and having acted, if there's an answer on that, then it's time to trust that the sovereign God is doing something that you don't understand. I often think of how in the New Testament, uh, even people there were at times left sick. Paul talks about his thorn in the flesh, which was almost certainly some sort of physical ailment. In one of his letters, he says, Trophimus, I left in Miletus sick. The great apostle left one of his team sick in Miletus. Well, yeah, he did. Would he have prayed about it? Absolutely. We know he would have done. But sometimes we just have to learn how to trust the sovereign God and not assume that when bad things happen to good people, it's necessarily because there's something bad in their life. There's a danger, though, even with the verse that you've quoted there from the New Testament about God bringing good out of bad, that that can come across as a platitude. Yes, it can. And so we have to be very careful. There's nothing worse than just charging up to someone who's had a rough time, like Job, and saying, well, brother, well, sister, you know, God works all things together for good. But I tell you what, as a pastor, I have lost count of the number of times I have ended up taking people to that word. I don't think we start there. I think the trouble is with Job's guys is they just didn't sit and listen enough, first of all. And sometimes when people are going through a tough time or sickness, what they need is is not necessarily an answer. What they need is a friend. And if we will sit and listen and be friends and squeeze the hand, And sometimes just say, I know, it's tough. I've said that so many times to people. But again, so many times as a pastor, I've sought steadily to lead them to this scripture. That, listen, your heart is set on God. I know it is. Why has this happened to you? I don't know. Partly because bad stuff happens in this world. We all live in a fallen world, Christians as well as non-Christians, Stuff happens. People get sick. Folk get cancer. People lose their jobs. It's part of living in a fallen world. But you know what? If we can keep our eyes fixed on God, God will bring something good out of this. And again and again, I've taken people to this scripture to start believing, God, I don't like where I am. It's painful where I am, but I'm going to declare that you're the God 
who works all things together for good. The interesting thing is Job never got an answer to his question. Even by the end of the book, he has not had an answer from God about why. Why did this happen? But rather what we end up with at the end of the book is Job having learned simply to trust God. Let me read these few verses from chapter 42. This is after the incredible encountering revelation he's had with the might and glory of God. Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do anything and no one can stop you. You asked, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? It's I. And I was talking about things I knew nothing about. Things far too wonderful for me. You said, listen, and I will speak. I have some questions for you and you must answer them. Lord, I had only heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. I take back everything I've said. And I sit in dust and ashes and show my repentance. He gets no answer for why. But what he has had by the end of this story is an encounter with the living God, a fresh encounter. You know, just one encounter at the start of our Christian lives isn't enough. We need encounters again and again, especially at challenging moments. And at that moment, he says, God, I didn't get an answer. But what I know this was, I, I, I used to talk lots of words, but now... Out of my encounter with you, I've seen you. I've seen something and I don't need an answer. Isn't that interesting? So what he experienced ultimately led him to get a new perspective on God. Absolutely. And that's why this book fits into the wisdom literature category, because it's engaging with the stuff of life, the things that go wrong in life at times, but showing us that through them all, it's finding God and walking in his ways that ultimately brings us through those times. How did Job's fortunes change? Well, the end of the story is almost a replica of the beginning of the story. God, first of all, says, I'm really not very blessed with these guys who came out with platitudes. That's a warning to those of us who are too quick to speak. But Job, he says, prayed for his friends. Isn't that gracious? Mm. These guys who come out all with all these platitudes. And the story ends by saying this, when Job prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes. It's like he has to release them. He has to let go of all the unhelpful stuff they've done. And when he does that, it's at that moment God can restore his fortunes. In fact, the Lord gave him twice as much as before. <laughs> then all his brothers and sisters and former friends came and feasted with him and they consoled him and comforted him because of all the trials that the Lord had brought against him. And they bring gifts to him. And then this, so the Lord blessed Job in the second half of his life, even more than in the beginning list some of the cattle and the things that he had. And Job lived 140 years after that 
living to see four generations of his children and grandchildren. Then he died, an old man who'd lived a long and full life. God not only restores what he's lost, but gives him even more than he had ever had. And that note there about living to see your children and your children's children in Old Testament terms was one of the most precious things that could be because it was through your children and children's children that you would be continued and remembered. But presumably that's not saying that Job was blessed sort of twice over because of what he'd experienced, but that God just wanted to bless him. This is the grace of God at work. This is not, you've suffered much, therefore I will give you much. This is, Job, you're pretty much still the same man as at the beginning of the story, one who trusts in me and believes in me, but you've had an encounter with me that's going to change your life forever again. Your trust is deeper. Your godliness is deeper. So it's not because of his suffering that he's rewarded. It's because he's hung on in there. He's just hung on in and it was tough and it's tough when you've got voices all around you telling you this and that and the other. But Job hangs on in there and he's learned an important lesson. You see, so often we think the book of Job is about suffering and in some ways it is, but in some ways it isn't because there's an important verse towards the end of the book where God challenges Job and says, you know, would you affirm your justice to prove mine wrong. And this was about not just suffering. This was about knowing who God is and knowing that God is a just God and that he is a God who, no matter what happens to us in our life, really does work all things together for good. And if we, like Job, will keep hold of him, even through the struggles and the tears and the disappointments, and even the questions. But if we keep hold of him, then that God who works all things together for good will ultimately, most assuredly, come through for us and bless not only us, but use us to further his purposes and his kingdom. David Tavener was in conversation with Mike Beaumont, who's written about the people of the Bible throughout the Christian Basics Bible. Catch their conversations anytime on the UCB Player or with your favourite podcast provider. Just search for Bible Biogs in 30 minutes.